All right. Um, yes, it was. So we're getting into um, Christianity and slavery tonight. Um, and it was my intent to spend numerous weeks um, exploring uh, Scripture's teaching overall regarding slavery and then its implications for uh, modernity and race relations, critical theory, overall political climate, etc. Um, so when when it got to when it came to this time though with teaching in Ukraine, um, some of the things that I mentioned all along, I I have not been able to number one devote as much research as warranting that amount of time, but also number two, I just I actually do have a schedule, believe it or not, that I I have projected out, and in order to stay on that timetable for us being here at Landmark, what's happening in the summer, um, I've had to pare that down. So with that said four or five lessons into one lesson, um, which is both challenging and it's not, it's, it's not easier, it's not easy on me, but it's actually probably harder on you guys more than it's hard on me because we moved through so many things so quickly. And so I do apologize for that. Um, accordingly, if you're used to sort of my thorough Old Testament digging on every reference, every point, um, every New Testament connection and all these things, it's going to be a little bit more absent tonight because I am having to move as quickly. So I have brought a ton of resources and I'm gonna pass them around um, and I can point you in the direction of resources beyond what I have here, but that is how tonight's gonna to have to go to some degree is that we're gonna to have to point you in the direction of resources and have to do a little bit on your own. So um, many, many pastors take this uh, slave section and really just base their entire interpretation, their entire sermon, on applying it to employment and employers. And I think that's, I mean, that's about the most valid inference if you're looking for the most direct application into our life. But I don't think it's the easiest or really the most needed. Um, I think you can go to just about any church that has preached a sermon on Colossians 3 late and find stuff about that. And so I want to take a little bit different approach um, and at least start you out thinking about more challenging issues um, so that you can be informed and importantly balanced in our political climate with which deals with racial tension quite often. So uh, again, I would love to dive into critical race theory, social justice, the woke movement, etc., Black Lives Matter. Um, but truthfully, my teaching time is very limited. And so um, I'm going to have to point you in the right direction and sort of let you go on that. Um, so here is my plan for tonight. I have given a tentative outline so that we can at least know where we're at because we're going to move quickly. So um, number one, we're going to cover the uh, slave master text here in Colossians. Um, number two, we're going to answer the inevitable question which rises out of that as to whether or not scripture approves of slavery. And number three, we're going to answer the question if American slavery was acceptable and morally permissible. And number four, we're going to give a brief word about how we as Christians should go forward. That's this brief time where I'll give a little bit of critique as to the secular movements I've seen in regards to this, and then we'll turn to Paul for a little bit at the end in this regard. So let's go ahead, and, and this is not usual, but it'll give you a little bit of an idea of the pace we're going tonight. Um, I'm going to have Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1 read as one chunk, and we'll, we'll move through it from there. The, the main reason I do that is I trust that you guys can actually read. And so, um, you know, there's, I mean, it really, there's stuff to learn out of this, there's stuff to dig out of this, but if you just read it, it's pretty self-evident, not self-explanatory. So Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those... Okay, pause, 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 sorry. Oh, what translation is that? <laughs> ESV. ESV. Okay, so, wait. You sure? That's what mine says. Yeah. That's what mine says. Mine's an MIV. So my ESV has slaves. Mine has a footnote to say slaves. So, okay, the word, I'm just going to undercut this. The word is doulos. Um, if doulos is you Christau t-shirts that you may see going around. So bond servants, historically, especially with the King James translation, was uh, something culturally the translators didn't feel comfortable in that era going with the word slaves, but... So when you hear bond servants, just know that it's a cultural sort of concession on translators' parts. Go ahead. Sorry. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he, he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, the point of this passage is really quite clear, as I think last week's was. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it is relatively clear. Um, slaves are to obey their masters, uh, different translation, more literal translation, according to the flesh, um, which Paul often uses in a negative connotation, but here it's just saying he's about to draw this parallel between spiritual masters in heaven, and so he's saying physical masters, you are to obey them in everything. Not just when you are being watched or under the eye would be another literal translation um, in order to get favor. So he's basically saying, you know, your boss comes around. Don't start working then because you want to be a hypocrite and get favor. You know, oh, here he comes. Better, better work. He's saying actually work, actually be ethical. And that is where I'd say most pastors jump off into a great modern application with employers. Um, but instead, slaves are supposed to work with singleness of heart, um, or as we would phrase it in modern terms, putting your heart into it, because they're in reverent awe of their real master, um, which in terms of the Christology in Colossians, he's, he's using the word Lord throughout this, and then later he says, who is Jesus Christ? So he, he makes Old Testament references, basically, of Lord, and then equates that to Christ, which is um, certainly... Uh, and evidence for the deity once again in Colossians because he says in the fear of the Lord an Old Testament saying to refer to God which is ascribed to Christ here. So whatever work you find yourself doing we're really working for Jesus and we should work from the soul. You're putting your heart into it, putting your soul into it. Um, you're supposed to get excited about it, put your soul into it because this is what God has given for you to do and you should therefore work for him. Why should we do this? Why should we do this? What should motivate you? So it says, yes, you're working for the Lord. What, what reason does the passage give? Not that the Lord shouldn't be motivation enough, but as somewhat of a motivating factor um, that should push us to obey our earthly masters. You have a reward. You have a reward. And what is that reward? Um, the, the literal translation is the reward of what? Inheritance. Now, it's been a long time. Lindsay had just joined the group. Any vague recollection of the word inheritance? I gave an abnormally long title and a band post for it, actually. Talk about land. It, I, I did. Where, where, where did we talk about that? So, particularly, you were talking. You were doing a comparison between. Earthly inheritance, inheritance as people normally understand it, and a Christian inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. The idea of inheritance itself is just what is given to you generally by a parent um, because you are their child and you've come of age and so you take hold of it. Generally, it's like land or a share in the work or whatever. Where in Colossians have we seen that before? I'll narrow down that question. That, that chapter, I did, one. chapter one, yes. And when I when I went through that, what did I say the inheritance was? What was the what was the idea that Paul's really trying to draw off of? So we started with land, right? And that's an Old Testament connotation. Where do we go from there? The Holy Spirit. No, I mean that's kind of a part. Yes, now it is, it is linked with it. And I made the case that, um, and here's what I really want you to remember about it is that God is exceeding His Old Testament promises regarding a land inheritance for Israel, and the inheritance is going to be an entire new world and new universe created for His people. In other words, God is going above and beyond His Old Testament promises and is exceeding those. So, as 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 the concern is spiritualizing promises, you know that's the dispensationalist concern. Like, oh, we can't have God just spiritualizing his promises. In spiritualizing it, God is actually exceeding his physical fulfillment of that, is, is what I have argued in the past. And so this is beautiful, right? Because um, verse 25 or verse 24, he's saying, be slaves of Christ. That's one possible translation. And, and what's amazing on this is, and this is debated somewhat in antiquity, but what did slaves often probably not get in a, in a household setting? An inheritance, right? You're, I mean, there are certainly cases where that did happen and, and that is a thing. 
But slaves probably lacked a share of the household going forward. And so for Paul to come along and say, for your heavenly master, you are working for an inheritance. This is a long-term motivating factor. It's a really cool sort of play on that socioeconomic status that they were experiencing. Um, Now, verse 25 then. Verse 25 has been a debated since uh, antiquity, I believe. Uh, I read somewhere that John Chrysostom wrote a commentary on Colossians. John Chrysostom, the uh, called Golden Lips from the Antioch school, if you're into church history. Um, but so from antiquity, this verse has been debated all the way through modern times. People are still split on verse 25. Um, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So the debate is, is that talking about slaves, or is it talking looking forward to masters, or is it talking about both? And I tend to lean towards it talking about slaves. Um, or both. And the reason for that, um, the reason I wouldn't directly apply it to masters is very simple. Paul tends to introduce a category and then talk about what they're supposed to do. Not usually the other way around. But the reason that I think it can be applied to both is if you flip over to the parallel text that is mirroring this over in Ephesians, guess where that wording is found attached to? It's found attached to masters. So you have to be careful not to read Ephesians into Colossians, but recognize that I think he's talking about slaves here. He's taking the same verbiage and using it for masters over there. And, and when you look at the verse, what is he saying? There's no partiality. And so I think a great case can be made that Paul's saying, I don't, okay, I don't really care who you are. I, I, it doesn't matter. God treats people equally. Okay. And so, so that's the sense of this verse. Um, and then we move on and we, um, we go into the section to the masters. But one of the reasons that I think Paul includes it here for slaves is that he, he wants to make sure that just because they are in sort of the, the, um, the submission category here doesn't just mean that they can get away with anything, right? Just because you are, quote, in the Lord doesn't mean that you can disobey your parents. It doesn't mean that you can um, be insubordinate towards your husband. And it also doesn't mean that as slaves you can do whatever you want and get away with it. They too will be held morally accountable. Um, And then finally, chapter four, it addresses masters and it basically tells them to be just and to be fair because they have someone lording over them as well. And that lord that you guys have as masters um, has expectations for your behaviors too. So you are not exempted from this call to equity and to goodness, right? So slaves, you're supposed to do this because you're serving the Lord And masters, you're serving the Lord, so um, you have the same sort of responsibilities. Skipping ahead and sort of stealing my own thunder here, you sort of see that Paul's flip-flopping, right? The people who are slaves are free because they serve the Lord, and the, the masters who are free are slaves because they are serving Christ, the Lord. And that is exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, ah, you know what? Be content because the slave is the Lord's free man and the free man is the Lord's slave. So you both are in the same boat anyways. That's sort of how he deals with it over in 1 Corinthians 7, which is what we're going to get to in just a moment. Now, with that said, and I know I've just really breezed through that. There's just not a lot of complicated stuff there, right? Obey, obey in everything. Be good to them. Don't just be hypocrites and obey them. Masters, don't be abusive. Okay, cool. We're even. Now, with that said, I want to back up and take a brief look um, at if Scripture generally, how it approaches the question of slavery. Now, I've brought with me here something that, if you're not careful, will be great sleeping material. Um, So here is, now, it is great sleeping material, but these, these authors from the past do a much more thorough job in dealing with the matter um, that I think that I think we do today. In my left hand here, we have um, one man, these are both authors from the Civil War era, dealing with the biblical question of slavery in America. And so, of course, each of them are going to offer their arguments from Scripture, because this was in newspaper journals back in the day. You know, this was, you know, actually academic material that was common. People would just sit down and read this stuff. Um, This guy is a pro-slavery advocate. This guy is an abolitionist. And this this article is in response to this guy's. And so it's really interesting um, to see. And it's one of those that you got to go through with a pencil really slowly. Um, And what I've included for you here is 
what you might consider a condensed commentary and summary of it, written by yours truly um, a couple years ago. And so uh, it summarizes the arguments and it will be helpful to you. The reason I offer this to you, and I'm going to hand it around for you to glance through, is if you want to dive into these things and actually assess how historical people in these time periods were assessing these issues, these are two of the best articles that you're going to find out there on it. And my paper will probably speed your journey through them up a little bit because they're certainly laborious to get through. If you want my personal opinion, I think that the pro-slavery advocate does a better job defending the position from scripture until the middle, and then it's like, oof, yeah, really went off the rails from there. So um, the guy who is an abolitionist makes a much better pragmatic argument. The guy who defends slavery from scripture makes a better textual argument. Go ahead and pass those around. I didn't decide to post them on Band. Band doesn't like large files or it takes a little bit of time to upload. If you want them and it's something you're interested in, please let me know. I'll be happy to send the stuff to you personally, okay? Continuing. So as you look at those, we're going to take a quick overview of the scriptural teaching on slavery. Is slavery everywhere in the Old Testament, New Testament? Yes. Can I do that justice in the time that I have? No. So we're going to take some very selected texts. Um, and we're going to begin in the Old Testament with Abraham and slavery. Um, and some have argued, Buck particularly here, um, that the Lord approves of slavery because of passages exactly like this. Genesis 24, 34 through 35. They say not only was Abraham held as this high man of faith who, if it was truly a sin, probably would have stopped sinning at some point in his life. But the Lord, catch this, catch what he does with slavery here in Genesis 24. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. What, did, what was one of the Lord's blessings to Abraham in that passage? It doesn't say it like that. Slaves. They were, he was given slaves. Um, to be clear, it's a different than the shadow slavery of, um, of the Civil War, but probably about on par with slavery at the time, which is not ideal. So. Right, and so what pro-slavery are, they're saying, okay, well, here's one instance where God is blessing someone by giving him slaves. Um, not only did Abraham uh, have slaves for much of his life, but he gives them to him as a reward. Um, in the conquest of the Holy Land, I didn't include this passage, the Gibeonites. Um, the Lord gave them as slaves to the nation of Israel. Um, and even in the Old Testament, you're saying maybe we should make these more like employees. Maybe that should be the application. But in Leviticus uh, chapter 22, uh, 10 through 11, Leviticus distinguishes between hired people and slaves. And not only does it say that, but it says that slaves um, and hired workers, uh, this is in context of what the priests were allowed to have. So the slaves were allowed to have priests and then um, it gives rules regarding it. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in the house may eat of his food. So you have to include the slaves as it's, it is a sense of justice, but. Notice there, it's not equivalent. The Old Testament does see a distinction between those two things. And again, we find no condemnation of slavery. Um, amazingly to me, the scripture even allows Israelites to own other Israelites, um, but it had rules governing what that was supposed to look like. And this is probably the most lengthy passage regarding slavery in the Old Testament um, in terms of legal code, Exodus 21, 2 through 11. By a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be, his, shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly say, says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, 
since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not dismiss her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Easy to read, but also like, when you sell your daughter as a slave for marriage. Hold on, we gotta back up, right? And so these are passages that you're like, you just read through as you're reading through the Old Testament, then you stop and you think like, wait a second. And it's similar to passages in the Old Testament where it's like, if someone were to uh, rape a woman, then they become their wife. Why is that? And what I'll argue later is that the Bible provides these clauses because societally, these are ways to protect the oppressed, right? These are not ways to make life crueler for them. In the case of rape, what was most common? Shove them out the door, no one cares about them, miserable life, condemning them to a horrible life thereafter. Scripture raises that within the society and makes it more tolerable, not less. And so we, it's, tough to, it's tough because we read our modern mind into these Old Testament passages. And so what I'll talk about here in a few moments is how Scripture really humanizes slavery in and elevates it contrary to what would be human experience in many other cultures. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing and doesn't think of divorce and rape as well. Absolutely. So in, into the New Testament then, um, when confronted with the issue of slaves being malcontent um, because of their slavery, Paul says them, don't be concerned about it. And that's, that's not a response that most pastors would probably give today. Um, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. First Corinthians 7, 20 through 24, a weird answer, but a nice phrase to give us a little saving grace within it. Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. Were you a bondservant or slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become uh, slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, uh, there let him remain with God. So he says that if you're free on earth, you're God's slaves. If you're a slave on earth, you're freed in the Lord. Um, remain in the state where you're called. But if you get an opportunity for your freedom and it works out for you, go for it. Um, so as a matter of fact, Scripture continually, in some sense, elevates the role of a slave because it uses it as an analogy for our relationship with Christ like it does Christ in the church. Um, Paul opens his letter by saying he is a doulos issue Christau, which means a slave of Jesus Christ. It is one of the most common ways of referring to, the apostles refer to themselves, was slaves of Christ. Um, and if you've ever received a handwritten note that deals with ministry from me, um, I steal this biblical word and sign a lot of my ministry letters sundulos or sundulos, meaning fellow slave. I sign a lot of my letters like that. And if you play with me on Xbox, my gamer tag is also sundulos with a picture of John MacArthur. Um, but anyways, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just up my Xbox to see John MacArthur sitting there smiling. But anyways, um, I think therefore it is, it is to answer the question of whether scripture condemns slavery, nowhere does scripture seem to condemn slavery? It tells us how to live within it like any other human institution. And every single human institution in history has had abuses. Um, government to people, uh, marriages, parenting, and, and slavery is no different. But how would, how, would it, how would you feel if I were to say in some marriages there is abuse, therefore the institution itself is immoral? That, that's sort of the equivalent that we take in interpreting scripture, and it would sound crazy. Um, but while God does not appear to have created slavery in the same way he did marriage, uh, scripture also lacks an abolitionist push inside of it. Instead, what it does is it attempts to Christianize it and teach it how, how you're supposed to live in the state where you are called. Um, so no, as one author put it, slavery is not sin in the abstract. Um, while it does not condemn it as sinful, it absolutely encourages people to seek freedom if they have the opportunity and resources to do so. Um, but you also have to remember that Paul encouraged us to remain single if we have the opportunity and availability to do so. So Paul is not a favor of you being enslaved and 
lorded over by anything except Christ, but recognizes that sometimes life has other plans. And life has other plans because imagine if the, God, the gospel would have been overshadowed. I want you to catch this. This is a historical note that I didn't put in here. Free bonus content. Um, the gospel would have been overshadowed if it had focused on the abolitionist social push. Over one-third, uh, maybe over two-thirds of the Roman Empire consisted in slaves. And if, the, if they had said, oh, and by the way, most of the churches consisted of slaves, not masters, and the gospel says, go, yes, rebel against your masters and seek freedom. Workers of the world unite. Yes, imagine the lack of gospel proclamation that would have happened in the Roman Empire and social revolutionary that would have happened instead. And so you have to recognize that we're dealing with a pretty politically tenuous situation as it is. We have to really be on top of this issue. Now, let's go ahead and turn to this very relevant question, um, especially if Scripture can be shown, as I think it can be, to have no condemnation of slavery as inherently sinful, let's turn to the question, was historic American slavery something which scripture would grant approval to, or was it heinously sinful? And having been to the Elmina Slave Castle, having been to historical sites with this, um, I think that there is some sense in which I have seen the, the historical aspects of this. Um, and so let me ask the question a bit differently. Was American slavery equivalent to the slavery which Scripture talks about and is therefore acceptable? That's the real question that I want to get at here. And I have heard civil, writer, civil war writers argue both ways as we're going around here um, and attempt to make the argument. Buck does. This is where I think he really, he does a great job. Very textual, very textual, very textual. And then he says, American slavery is this. And that's where he really goes off the rails because he has a very idealized view of what slavery was in America. Pendleton's response is largely, that's really cute. That's not at all what's happening in America right now. Okay, that's not what's happening, Buck. <laughs> Buck. That's <laughs> not what's happening, Bucky. Um, and so that's, that's really where the debate goes between these two is that Buck is like, this is what... America is. And Pendleton's like, no, no, it's not. And that's really the same. So I'm kind of melding the two really and saying, yes, I agree that Buck makes a great case from the Old Testament, New Testament, that scripture doesn't provide a condemnation of slavery. But Pendleton is absolutely right in his assessment of the practical, pragmatic aspects of what has happened in our country historically. Um, let me provide you four reasons why I believe that American slavery fundamentally, inherently differed from what the Bible describes in terms of slavery that is approved of and why American slavery is therefore a heinous sin. First, what was the basis of American slavery? Power. Race. Boom. Race, which is inextricably linked to power, of course. But for us, American slavery was rooted in intense racism, which scripture categorically rejects as sinful. Now, the reason why it is so controversial to say that slavery isn't sinful to an American audience is that for us, when I say slavery, you hear racism, which has not always been the case, historically. Has well, it been? It wasn't even always this case in America, actually, but... Actually, it started the first, as well, a status situation. The first slave owner was actually black and he had a white slave. That is the case. And that's not to say that was all slavery. By far the yes. minority. But a little history too. Yes, absolutely. And, and you see indentured servanthood and servitude early on in American history. But by and large, American slavery really has, does have racist roots. And, and we've, heard, we've just heard Paul a moment ago to say that uh, to stay in enslaved conditions, if that's where you're called... Great, but I also want you to know that Paul was an ardent confronter of racism wherever he saw it. Um, look at how Paul confronts Peter's racism over in Galatians 2, 11 through 16. And this is really spicy. I mean, we have, we have Paul, who's the apostle to the Gentiles, by the way. Catch that. Paul, the, the Jew, who's raised in racism, basically, being the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's full-on abandoned that ship. And then... He comes back to Jerusalem and he's like, wait, so Paul's a new kid on the block to Peter and yet he doesn't pick any bones, you know, uh, about, you know, confronting Peter as it is. Galatians 2. 
But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed unto his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. This is a long sentence. In Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Top 10 scenes I want to see in The Chosen. Paul confronts Peter to his face. (laughs) Says, you are out of line with the gospel, buddy. I cannot wait to see that. Um, But, I mean... Paul, uh, Paul couldn't stand a church divided by any lines, and he would have been called to learn of racial favoritism. Galatians 3, chapter 28, another time, Jew, Greek, Jew, Greek, Jew, Greek, and Paul doesn't care. He says that like 10,000 times in his epistles. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we have the race, we have the slavery issue. I mean, it's all there. He doesn't really care. We're all equal in Christ. And so what's awesome is you could... Live in a society, slaves are down here, masters are up here, but you go to church and masters have to submit to the authority of the elder, the slave. Ooh, that's, that's an interesting dynamic, right? And yet, Paul says we're all equal here. We may not be equal out in the world. We all have different roles that God has given us and called us to. But when it comes to the church, this is the one place where we will find equal footing. Reason number two, American slavery was rooted in kidnapping. It was not a voluntary step into slavery. It wasn't like being born into slavery as it has been historically. It wasn't even being taken as prisoner of war. It was going to another continent and stealing people violently against their will and holding them in brutally harsh conditions, which would be uh, something you shouldn't even subject animals to. Um, As the ESV Study Bible points out, not only did scripture call for justice in how slaves were to be treated, it also calls for justice in how someone was to become a slave. Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, 1 Timothy 1.10. Yeah, 1 Timothy 1.10 is NIV, by the way. Exodus 21. Anyone who kidnaps someone is, is to be put to death, whether the victim has been ensold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Deuteronomy 24. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 1 Timothy 1.10 For adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound, glorious, to sound doctrine, that conforms to that glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusts to me. Paul's in a negative section there, by the way. I didn't include it, but he's in a things, list of things he does not like, um, which slave traders is right up there with. If you didn't catch that from yeah. <laughs> uh, reason number three. Um, Old Test in the, the Old Testament viewed slaves as people, not property. America viewed slaves as property, not people, generally. I know I'm making some generalizations here. In the Exodus 21 passage, the laws about slaves are included, catch this, in laws governing human interaction, not laws regarding property loss, which is substantial for what it says regarding how they viewed slaves um, in their culture. Even if scripture does permit owning another human being, they never lose the fact that they are a human being being and should be treated that way, not like property. Scripture treats slaves humanely in a sense of justice. It maintains the sanctity of marriage instead of dehumanizing marriage. Um, That passage earlier talked about conditions for how slaves can come in and out of marriage, whereas historically, you know, just you can tear apart a marriage at will, basically. Um, And scripture views all humans as fully human, not three-fifths human as the U.S. did in its history. Reason number four, um, 
which the Civil War pro-slavery author I mentioned a moment ago highlights very, very well. Slavery, again, he does this so well and then does so poorly for the rest of the article. Um, slavery was actually a means by which the poor and oppressed could have their conditions improved, not reduced. Um, though slavery conditions in the Roman Empire were bad, and if you had a cruel master, they were really bad, if you were destitute, you actually may be provided for more by being a slave than you would be as a free man. You would at least have a roof and food. In the case of Israel, many of them ended up in a lot of debt. And that's how they ended up getting into slavery because that was a way for them to pay back. And yet scripture says at the Jubilee, the seventh year, you'll be set free. So scripture is always advocating for the poor and oppressed. And culturally, ancient slavery sometimes was a positive way out. Um, not an extreme negative as we know it to be in American history. One of the things that Buck says there, and I think it's a little distorted in his view of American slavery is where he's driving. He said, one of the reasons we can't emancipate everyone is because then we would have a bunch of poor people who would actually be worse off. And I'm, I don't necessarily think he contextualizes that well, but historically, scripture is doing these things and creating all these laws to ensure that human condition is being improved, not reduced um, by you just being poor and out of luck, if you would. Um, was, so, you know, and, and I, I just, I don't see that in American history, but was every slaveholder ever a sinner in America for owning slaves? While they're engaged in a sinful system, were there probably some who really were Christian slave owners and engaged in this in a way consistent with what Paul tells the masters to do? Probably. Were there probably some who were not racist, didn't have a racist bone in their body and had great contempt for racism? I think that's a fair um, implication. But was that the majority? No. Uh, was American slavery as a whole sinful and out of line? Yes. Did American slavery um, have a kind of slavery that scripture recognizes? No. Um, unless you can prove to me that slavery wasn't grounded in racism, kidnapping, dehumanization, and oppression, American slavery historically exists as something scripture would despise. Um, if America had obeyed scripture and ridded itself of slavery's abuses, it may have well have ceased to exist because American slavery nearly entirely consisted in abuses, right? The entire premises that American slavery worked with were very abusive. And so if its abuses had been eliminated, it, the institution might have been as well in America from the very beginning. So lastly for tonight, um, I, want, I want to take the, on the question of where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And before I take any, um, any steps into some more further, uh, firmer, uh, hard line type stances on our cultural issues today, um, I want to give just a quick pause and have a moment for soft reflection here. I don't have anything to hide. I think most of you know that I'm, you know me well enough to know that I'm going to argue against some of the more woke positions in society today. Um, but unfortunately, most often people who push back against woke culture often get so caught up in pushing back that they forget there are real people, real emotions, and real hurts to be had here. Um, so if at any point in your life that you have been racially profiled against or discriminated against, um, I, I want to apologize to you and express just how sorry I am for that. Um, even if your heart simply hurts for people who have been racially profiled or racially discriminated against um, in the past, just reflecting on these historical issues or people that you know in the present, I also want to say that I am genuinely sorry that that has been um, something that you've had to suffer with. Um, and, and the thing is, when I, when I hear a lot of more woke pastors say they are sorry, um, this is, there's, there's ulterior motives for the reason they do this. And so what I want to turn around and say is I want to tell you something that I hope makes my apology more sincere and more meaningful. And, and that is that I don't say that I'm sorry for this simply because I am white, okay? I didn't commit any racial sins against you myself. My reason for saying that I am sorry is the reason that I would say sorry to someone who is in a marriage that is broken or into a parental situation that is broken. It is because I am sorry as a Christian 
and because I am sorry as a human that was created just like you, and I hate to see that God's order in the world is being marred by the abuses of mankind. Um, I, I'm sorry because God only created one race and one humankind, and to think that people are violating that against people that I know is horrific to me, right? That bothers me in the same way that I hate, even though I'm not married, seeing marriages fall apart because that's not God's design. That's not what God wants. Um, and, you know, I, I don't say sorry because as a single person, I feel some sense of guilt that you're married and suffering. I say it because God's purpose and beauty in the world is being marred. And he created one people with great beauty and diversity, true diversity, not just token diversity, true diversity. And that should be something that's awesome. And so often it's not. And that, that is why I am sorry. So no, I don't say sorry because I want to get into my little group um, of being white and say sorry to another group, another racial group. I want to step back as a human Christian and recognize that sin breaks God's heart and it breaks mine too. And I hate seeing my brothers and sisters hurt. Not because I'm black. Uh, no, definitely not because, <laughs> not because I'm white and you're black or Chinese or Indian or whatever, but because I love you for you being essentially you. And I recognize, I was talking with Josh about this a moment ago. I say this to a predominantly white audience here for one simple reason, is that I, I'm going to go on to argue that racial discrimination isn't just a one-way street, counter, counter to what our culture is saying, and that it can happen to anyone. And so in the same way that I want to be consistent in saying that if you have experienced hurt from a bad marriage, I'm sorry for that, genuinely. And if you've experienced hurt from a parental relationship, child, that's going very poorly. I am genuinely sorry for that. And if anyone of any color has experienced any hurt from racial issues, I'm also really genuinely sorry because of that. And that is a message that when we push back against woke cultures and worldviews which are oppositional to the Christian worldview, it, those messages get really lost because we're so excited to fight against woke ideology that we forget that there are actually real instances of hurt. And so do, transitioning here, do I believe um, that real racism occurs today? Yes, absolutely. Um, with that said, you can go down the woke road um, of social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality. If I, if I were to say intersectionality, how many of you by show of hands know what I'm talking about? Okay, critical race theory. Okay. Um, intersectionality is just, a, it's not an inherently bad term, but it, it turns out to be. Can is, I give a quick definition? So basically, uh, you're part of a group that's been afflicted and maybe you're part of two groups. Okay, so there's an intersection between those two afflicted groups. So perhaps you're a black or you're a woman or you're both. Well, then there's an intersection and the more intersection you have, the more you're oppressed. At least that's how it's colloquially used. Right, white, Christian, straight, biological male, oppressor group, um, trans, black, um, you know, and you can go down the line and you end up in an oppressed group by default just because of your intersection. That's the ideology behind that. Um, but I don't think that intersectionality, BLM, I don't think that these are appropriate responses to the issue, the, to the issue um, here because, as a matter of fact, I think that the idea, the ideology underlying them is so morally unconsciousable and is borderline sinful if you truly understand and embrace that ideology um, if you really get what's going on behind them. Do I think that most people take the time to understand the ideology going behind them? No. Do I think a lot of people participate in these things, in some sense, innocently? Yeah, because they have good intentions, and I recognize that. But if you really actually think about the issues, I think that you will find that there, there are pieces at play here that are a worldview so contrary to the Christian worldview that it becomes you have to embrace one worldview or the other. And so, um, quite honestly, while BLM and many others are framed as the only option by which we can truly be loving towards individuals of color, I have deep concern that it will result in practical hate for them if we follow their ideology to its uh, end goal and tell us. Therefore, because the ideologies which claim to be love end in practical hate uh, towards my neighbor, 
I must reject them. Does that make sense? So just because something claims to be love, if I see the end of that ending in something that actually is harmful to them, it is an ideology which results in hate. Therefore, I must reject that ideology because it violates the Christian principle of loving your neighbor and loving God. So let's unpack that just a little bit more. And I'll provide you some reasons why I think that, again, in a very expedited fashion. Do I believe that racism occurs today? Yes. I believe that there are instances of true bona fide racism. Um, but I believe that they are less common than what we would be led to believe. Instead, I would say that today we largely see a struggle between two or maybe three economic classes, two or three economic classes which are largely composed of ethnic or racial classes. Now, if someone knows their critical race theory well, they're going to respond quickly, yes, finally, exactly, you've got it. Our racial discriminatory past has combined with systemic structural inequalities left over in the present day, which must be fixed, right? So they're saying, yes, you're seeing it. The class struggle is actually a race struggle because of racism and therefore the classes are racist and our system is set up in a racist fashion. Um, the, the issue with that is, this is what's amazing about it, is there could, be, there could be, in the critical race theory model, no individual racists in society at all, and racism still be prevalent because of structures. Okay? And that's why you see the Smithsonian coming out with odd articles like, <laughs> math is racist. And you're like, work is racist. Oh. Timeliness is racist. <laughs> and actually, they actually said that. Family is also racist. So that's how you, that's how you get into weird places where you're like, it's a thing. How is it racist? Because it's the structures, not so much the acts of people, that become racist. And so these structural inequalities are what need fixed. What a nice thing to unpack. And so when advocates of these types of positions are calling for systemic, structural types of things to be fixed, what does that mean? And let's unpack that in practice a little bit. Um, Typically, it usually is reflected in policy-type decisions, which are basically, for all intents and purposes, rebranded Marxism. Um, where classical Marxism has had the class distinctions between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the working class and the capitalist ruling class, modern Marxism has rebranded to replace the proletariat as individuals of color and the bourgeoisie as white capitalists. Now, keep in mind that this, um, this ideology was being born in the 1960s and 70s. You're in the Cold War. The, 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 uh, there's a, no, there's a Latin term that I'm looking for. The Soviet Union falls, right? And this is this big instance culturally of Marxism has failed, right? The proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the capitalist system has won. And so instead of trying that same trick again, what, what thinkers did is they rebranded it and said, okay, we, that path didn't work. How do we tweak this system? It goes a little bit deeper than that. It's mainly actually more because there's a lot of class mobility in America, whereas race relations have always been more tense. Yes. So the actual classical Marxist doesn't really work in America, but racial Marxism works quite well. It does. And modern, and the reason, okay, here's the reason, the first reason that I reject this woke ideology is that under the pretense of uniting people, the actual effort is to foster hostility between two racial groups, okay? Marxism's point is to, um, is to foster hostility, and we'll get into the reason why just uh, in a moment for the Marxist ideology behind that. But if you don't listen to me, um, listen to um, the, this prayer book from the Woke Camp, and I, I wanna read the whole thing, it's just too long. Um, but I, I, act like, I say that, but here's the type of language that, call, that comes out of the, the, I hate to use this term, it kind of gets twisted, but cultural Marxist um, camp. Here's the first sentence in it. Dear God, please help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. Um, I'm not talking about the white anti-racist allies who have taken up the struggle against racism with their whole lives, blah, 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 uh, blah, blah, blah. 
No, these aren't the people I want to hate. I'm not even talking about the ardent racists either. The strident segregationists who mow down nonviolent anti-racist processors, who open fire on black churchgoers, or who plot acts of racial terrorism hoping to start a race war. Those people are already in hell. There's no need to waste hatred on them. Perhaps, however, you could make sure that they don't take the rest of us with them. My, skipping down, my prayer is that you would help me to hate the other white people, you know, the nice ones. The Fox News loving Trump supporting voters who, quote, don't see color, but who make thinly veiled racist comments about those people. Um, and all throughout, it, it keeps explaining different. Oh, this one. Oh, oh, Romans nine wise. It really just gets me. Lord, if it be your will, harden my heart. I just, as a Calvinist, it really, I was struggling at that point, especially. But I, I hope you can hear that there is intentional hostility being fostered between these two camps. Why would you want to do that? What is the end of that? Um, and this is why I'm saying it's not so much a racial reconciliatory effort. <clears throat> the real effort is always political. And that is why you see such a surprising tie between the money trails of these social organizations and politics. The lobbyists, yeah, they, they really seem to have a conflict of interest when you look into their, their governance structures. Um, here's why you want to do that. Because there will always be more working class than ruling class, if you can foment a rebellion among the proletariat population, you can cause the proletariat to overthrow the bourgeoisie. And thus, my second reason for disagreeing with woke ideology is that it encourages violence, which is directly against the Christian ideology. Um, and I ask you, over the past couple of years, test my assessment of this and see if it hasn't been true. Now, is every instance of a thing protesting uh, racial injustice been violent? No, but what is the trending? What is the um, what are what are the leaders of these organizations saying that violence is justified simply because of the tension that has been there for so long? It is rebranded proletariat bourgeoisie Marxism. Um, now, from that antagonism, there has come this violence, um, and while while you may not endorse the violence as a participator in things like BLM and these sort of groups. The reason you have to categorically reject the ideology is because it is, it is baked into the cake of what these organizations are built on. And so, yes, the, the lay-level person may have perfectly fine intentions, and I, I recognize that, but I can't, I can't give my stamp of approval to something which, at its theoretical level, is a worldview which you have to adopt and reject the Christian worldview. Um, next, though not properly a Marxist idea because you can't, I read some really interesting articles on this. You can't, uh, I'm going to stop. It's going to confuse you guys. Sorry. Um, this is not a properly Marxist idea to be very fair to a Marxist camp, if anyone in here is a avowed Marxist. Um, but next, after this overthrow the bourgeoisie, what comes next? Forced redistribution of wealth to rectify past inequalities. Um, and I have three issues with this, which, by the way, in terms of... Um, the modern political situation you hear to refer to as reparations for past slavery. Um, there, I have three issues with this. First, if you are taking from one forcefully and giving to another, the mob proletariat is tantamount to stealing. Second, social justice combined with intersectionality teaches that if you are a part of some group, white, straight, Christian, being an intersectional group, then you are responsible for the sins of your group. Okay. This violates scripture's view of justice, which is to say that you are responsible for your, to pay the penalty for your own sins, that you are responsible for your own moral actions and not that of your ancestors. And so in terms of moral responsibility for guilt, scripture always differentiates between fathers and children, and which is why you see the social justice movement so far diverging in its results from biblical justice. Deuteronomy 20, uh, 24.16, Ezekiel 18, Jeremiah 31. These are all passages with deal with the idea that an individual cannot be held responsible for a past generation's um, specific guilt in some sin. Deuteronomy 24. Fathers are not to be put to death for their children or children for their fathers. Each person will be put to death for his own sin. Uh, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, 19 through 20. Uh, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the inequality of a father? 
whom the Son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all the statutes, he shall surely live. The soul whose sin shall die, the Son shall not suffer the, for the inequality of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity. Jeez, Louise. Iniquity of the Son, righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Jeremiah 31. In those days they, they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Um, and then third, and this is the primary reason that I am against these movements, um, attempting to make everyone economically equal as restitution always ends up hurting the poor and the oppressed more than anyone else. So while this sounds nice, government forced reparations will hurt the poor, or at least it has historically. Um, the living standard for everyone becomes equally awful instead of unequally good, in other words. And so if you want, yes, inequality exists, but if you really want to be loving towards people, you have to make equal opportunity for people to be unequal in the final analysis because that allows everyone to have a better basic standard of living. So I cannot support ideologies which pretend to help the oppressed, yet I know from a historical perspective evidence that this will result in greater harm to them. Now finally, in terms of rebranded Marxism, um, it continually teaches that whatever actions are done by the proletariat to accomplish the revolution are justified. Um, you will hear today that black people cannot be racist against white people. They can be prejudiced, but not racist, because being racist means that you have the power to oppress another people group. Um, first, I, I love how we choose to redefine words at liberty <laughs> now, but this is, this is not what scripture teaches. It, it teaches that anyone, even the slave, as Paul says here, can be guilty because there is no partiality. Scripture doesn't assign guilt for actions based on if you fall into the group of oppressors or oppressed. It assesses you individually for the actions that you have done. You have individual moral responsibility before God, not for your supposed group. <clears throat> and those groups are pretty thin um, anyways as you consider that we are all one humankind. So what do we do then? Well, um, what's our action steps, if not these sort of um, social uh, justice groups? Um, let's cover a sample briefly. Um, can anyone tell me something that they found peculiar about the slave master text in comparison to the rest of the power structures in this text? What's different about it? It was like two sentences long. It was longer. Why was it longer? Uh, look over at uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. Who's carrying this letter? Who's carrying the letter? Onesimus. Onesimus. Now, Philemon, okay? Philemon is the rich guy who probably is, from what I've gathered, is the rich guy where the house church of Colossae meets in his house. So Colossians is sent back, and he's sent back with Onesimus, and this passage gets read in the congregation and you get this real awkward moment as Onesimus has now returned from his runaway trip to Rome probably to meet up with Paul and he might have stolen something and taken something from Philemon and so we got a really awkward situation about to happen as this is read publicly. And so Paul sort of slides in the book of Philemon on the trip and I think there's some really amazing, I think Paul, Paul just in such a mature fashion handles this um, oppressor oppressed relationship. And so I think I, I just want to draw out a couple things from Paul's conduct here. Number one thing that I want to draw out is that if you ever see an instance of racism directly, like Paul did, Paul was very quick to confront it to the face, right? Boom. Okay. Situation addressed and fights racism very directly in front of him. Um, but the first point I want to look at is uh, Philemon uh, verse eight and verse 14. Let's have those two verses read. Philemon eight and 14. but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. 
Paul recognizes that forcing two parties to reconcile who would fall into the oppressor and the oppressed categories, if you force them to reconcile, it will never truly work. Instead, the gospel has to so work in the heart of the oppressor to voluntarily look for opportunities to provide for the oppressed and look to lift them out of the oppressed state. Where Marxist ideology says that you have to fight and shed blood, um, and where many would say that you have to force people um, by redistribution of wealth to atone for the sins of the past, Paul says and shows us that there's only one real way to get the issue done, and that is this gospel bond, um, which, which causes reconciliation to be genuine. And if reconciliation, according to Paul, is to be genuine, it has to be voluntary. He says, I could force you to do this. I have the power to do that, but I don't want to. So that when people see your good works, they know that it was for real. They know that it was real. Second, Philemon uh, 12, 15, and 16. I am sending him back to you, sending my very Uh, coming around right now, by the way, a good book um, that I've started on um, this issue and then a statement which I signed during the pandemic um, and social justice issues were happening. Um, so the second point out of this that I want to draw out, if you want to advocate for a Christian individual in an oppressed group, partner with them in meaningful ministry. Paul partnered with a slave wholeheartedly. Um, and he gave them a very personal aspect of his heart. You have to get involved with them emotionally. Um, Paul was really genuinely partnering with Onesimus. The way to accomplish social justice is not to put a black person on stage or to put a picture of a black person on the front of your church brochure. Um, partner with someone in an oppressed category for real. People are not social tokens. And if you want real social justice, then you're going to have to really partner with these people in ministry, which means sometimes you don't because they're not the best ministry partner. And sometimes you do because they're the best ministry partner, right? Like if you really want to see change, you don't have tokens, you have real involvement and you really invest your heart in people. And Paul has clearly invested his, he says he's like my very heart, man, please, please let me have him back. You have to have real partnership to have real progress forward. Third, uh, Philemon 18 through 22. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Fresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Um, my third point is here is that if, if your hope for racial reconciliation is meaningful, then you're going to put your money where your mouth is. Paul was willing to personally get involved in the mess with money. Right, And so we've had this talk about forced redistribution of wealth, but Paul, the advocate, is willing to put his own wealth on the line in order to make sure that the oppressed peoples can, can prosper. Right? He is not just like, oh, I really hope that you know, we can have social reform in the Church of Philosophy and that everything goes great, guys. He says, you know what? If he's stolen from you, then put it on my account. I believe so much in this reconciliation between you two that I'm not asking you to do for this for free. I'm willing to put my money on the line there. And so the Christian answer is to, is to have all things in common, like the early church did. But what's different than using that as a communist text is that it was voluntary, privatized institutions that people gave out of their own generosity voluntarily um, where the local establishments know what's best for the people in their local community as opposed to a central planning agency which forces the redistribution of wealth overall and is incredibly inefficient. This is what it means to be a Christian is that you live generously and your money goes to your message of helping the oppressed. Okay, And there's so many ways to do that. But yes, money is involved just in a privatized voluntary fashion. So talk is cheap. Not only was Paul willing to love someone on their behalf and advocate for him, woo, he was willing to voluntarily act on their behalf. And all of it was voluntary, all of it motivated by the gospel, love, and brotherhood. That's how we should be if we want heart-level 
class reconciliation, heart level class reconciliation. Um, now, honestly, just as we finish here, isn't it amazing that we as Gentiles get to worship the Lord together? Um, you know, if we were back a couple thousand years ago, we would be the odd people out, right? We'd be the, in the outer courts no matter what race would be recognized in. I, have, I believe I have one Jewish person in my cohort, but the vast majority of every Christian I have ever met would be the person that is the odd man out in terms of that. But don't you love the introduction to Ephesians where it talks about how Christ has torn down the dividing wall between the two. Um, and, and that is how it should be in the church. Um, and by the way, if anyone of you ever discriminates against anyone, I'm going to have to beat your butt. I really am. Um, that is unacceptable. That's truly unacceptable. Um, because we have, as Gentiles, all been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. So well, I, I don't necessarily seek out diversity for the sake of diversity. I love the diversity that we do have here. And some of it is ethnic, but the majority of it isn't. And that's okay. Uh, most of us who are, are here are not at all similar people. We are vastly different. And so diversity comes in all types of life and it is very difficult most of us would not be in each other's lives in a real way, not just a token way, if it weren't for partnering in the gospel together. Um, so tonight, I want to look around and celebrate diversity in any form that you find it. It is, it is honestly one of the most amazing things. So um, not in a woke way do I want to celebrate diversity that is just caring about your skin color for a political end, but in a real way that cherishes that Christ has broken down every type of wall that there is and that there ever could be. Um, uh, the Corinthian church tried to build it back up only 30 years later, right? The poor and the rich not having communion together. But it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, in terms of, yes, you have things in society that are different. There are roles, yes, but in the church and before God, all people are created equally. And, and the church is the one place where that should be realized in a consistent way from here through eternity. So um, we are one body and we are one people and we should act like it. So that is all that I have for us tonight. And I, I appreciate the fact that we've gone over here, but um, that's the best effort I can give to condensing the passage, overall scriptural teaching, a little bit of historical note, and then some thoughts on where we'd go from here. So thank you guys for being attentive. And I know that it is a controversial topic, so I appreciate charitability and grace um, going forward. But yeah, thank you guys.